So uh, the verse tonight is really, really short. I'll read it for us, and I'll pray, and then we'll dive into it. I just want to read the first, uh, really, not even two verses. First 1 and 2a, Leviticus 1. Here's what Moses writes. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them. And we're going to spend the rest of the semester looking at what he said. But let's pray together, and let's dive in tonight. Uh, Lord, we do thank you that you are a God who uh, loves to reveal yourself to us. Um, you haven't left us in the darkness. You haven't left us to ourselves, even. You haven't left us in guilt. You haven't left us in despair. You haven't left us in cynicism. You haven't left us in the deadness that is sin, the deadness of what it means to not know you or love you or be known or loved by you. But instead, you've revealed, you've spoken to us. And I pray that you would be gracious to us tonight, that your spirit would move in this room, that your spirit would... Uh, do do his work of both convicting, leading us to repent, leading us to see the beauty of Jesus and resting in him. Lord, we need you. We need you to encourage us. We need you to be at work in us. And that's why we're here tonight. And I pray that you would meet us in that way. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. So I don't know if you've had the chance to watch The West Wing. I feel like um, The West Wing, NBC years ago, was a show about a president, about a president. And sort of his administration. It's a really interesting show to go back to. It's an Aaron Sorkin drama. It's great for a lot of reasons. I'm slowly working my way through it. There's an episode of The West Wing that's kind of famous where there's this evangelical psychiatrist sort of like podcast, has a show kind of person. Her name's Dr. Laura. And she's in one of these press conferences with, with Bartlett, President Bartlett, who's the West Wing uh, president. And she's basically just not respecting him at all, kind of asking pointed, like, kind of pointed questions and coming from the worst that can be evangelicalism. And Bartlett just gives it to her. And it has everything to do with the book of Leviticus. Let me just read the kind of dialogue. Uh, Bartlett says to her sarcastically, I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. And Dr. Laura says, I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. She replied haughtily, the Bible does. And then here he goes. He, this is his, his rant. Yes, it does, he shouted. Leviticus 18.22. He was just warming up. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table and it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? And after a brief moment, he keeps going. While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGeary, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally oblig- obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? And he's like on a roll, like he's really going now. Then triumphantly, he says, here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame, can West Point, and then he keeps going. Does the whole town really have to be, to, get, to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? And he says, think about those questions, would you? One last thing, while you may be mistaking this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant tight A club, in this building, when the president stands, nobody sits. And then he like, it's like his drop the mic moment. But when he says it, if you watch the clubs on YouTube... It's a powerful moment because what in the world do we say as Christians, right? This is why people dismiss the book of Leviticus. So what I want to do tonight is sort of really do two things. One, I want to look at how Leviticus, just setting the book up, is an obstacle to belief. How we really struggle, how it really is, has hard things that we don't know what to do with, how it's an obstacle. And then second, I want to look at how it's a vehicle. 
like how it's actually why God preserved it for us, what it still has to say to us. And we're going to spend the rest of the semester working that out. But first, let's think for a second about why it's an obstacle. And we've kind of already gotten into it, right? Like Bartlett laid out some of the things that are ridiculous. This is the first reason it's an obstacle. If you've ever read, you should go home and read the book of Leviticus. And I'm telling you, you're not going to know what to do with it. There's so much in there where you're like, how in the world? It says this, this kind of makes sense, but then it says that, and that makes no sense. A lot of the things it says seem totally ridiculous. Um, No one has has made more comedy out of this than Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman, who plays Ron Swanson and Parks and Rec, he has a whole bit, I don't know if you've seen it, he has a whole bit on his latest stand-up. And he has a whole chapter in his book uh, called uh, uh, Paddle Your Own Canoe. Here's what he says about the book of Leviticus. He calls it the most effed up book in the world. And he says this. He says, I believe it was none other than the Lord God Almighty who instructed us to love thy neighbor as thyself. Wise words from the king of kings. Unfortunately, he spake this phrase smack dab in the middle of the book of Leviticus. And I think we can all agree by now that when it comes to writers of books of the Bible, the Leviticus scribes are about as nutty as a tree full of squirrels. The flagrant, and here's where he gets kind of serious. He ends the chapter saying this. The flagrant double standard espoused in Leviticus should surely be enough evidence for us to take the Bible's trustworthiness out of the equation. When I am instructed by the all-knowing Jehovah to profess an ostensibly equal brotherly love within the same pages where I'm instructed to murder my fellow man or woman for engaging in a love act, I can't help but look elsewhere for guidance. I am choosing to enlist instead the book of my own common sense. And the question he raises is, isn't Leviticus ridiculous? Like, can we really believe that it's God's word to us in 2017? Can't we just dismiss it, that the Bible is untrustworthy? It seems ridiculous. That's the first obstacle. It seems ridiculous, some of the things that it said. But not even ridiculous. I think this, the next step for us in our culture in 2017 is it, it doesn't, if it's not ridiculous, it's verging on, the, on dangerous to actually believe these things, to actually believe that God takes these things seriously. To believe he takes our holiness seriously. This is where when Obama ran his first campaign, he, he talked about this. He talked about bringing the Bible into politics. And he had this quote where he said, would it be James Dobson or Al Sharpton's opinion that we would follow? And then he said, which, patches, which passages of scripture should guide our public policy? Should we go with Leviticus, which suggests slavery is okay and that eating shellfish is an abomination? This is why my friend Les Newsom, he calls the book of Leviticus you're that crazy <laughs> uncle in your family. The one who at the wedding gets super drunk and you sort of shield your friend or girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse from because you're not sure what they're going to say or do. And you're maybe sure that they're probably into some shady stuff that you don't want to expose that friend or girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse to. Leviticus seems like that, that crazy drunk drunk uncle at 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 the wedding. Um, And more seriously, Leviticus is, I've already said it, it is the reason we see the Bible is not trustworthy. It is the book that we look to, that everyone looks to, that says, you, how, you believe the Bible? What do you do with this? What do you do with the shellfish thing? What do you do with the crops thing? Like, I like shrimp. And, I'm a shrimp and grits guy, right? <laughs> is Leviticus saying, nope, abomination. What do, we, what do we do with it? Leviticus, no more book than Leviticus, is the reason we reject Scripture. And for us, you know, if, you, if you grew up, you're a believer, you, you know you, you believe that the Bible is God's word. Well, then what in the world does God have to say to you through Leviticus? And this is the tension. It's an obstacle. And yet we have to say, if we believe the Bible is God's word and we do, then he has something to say to us. I mean, we're going to have to do our homework. 
we're going to have to not have an easy reading of Scripture. This is one of the challenges of this semester is going to be, how do you, are you a student of Scripture? Do you know how to apply it? Do you know what to do with it? Do you know how to, to weigh it rightly and apply it rightly? But we have to say that the Lord has seen fit to preserve this book for us. Like That's what we believe that Scripture says, that God has preserved all of Scripture, even in ancient history, for us. And it had, even the ridiculous laws have something to say to us. So what in the world do we do with it? Um, strangely enough, no one got this better than Rob Bell, which just sounds weird to say. He, in a blog post years ago, he like nailed this idea. He's since probably turned from it, but that's for another time. Here's what he said, though. He, he preached a whole series in Leviticus years ago. He actually started his, if you know Rob Bell at all, he started his huge megachurch in Michigan, and he started with the book of Leviticus. And here's what he said as to why he did it. This was like 10 plus years ago. He said this. He said, I actually believe that the biblical text is a living and breathing word. The first time I seriously attended a church, our pastor preached through the book of Leviticus for an entire year, verse by verse. Yes, that's right. Minstrel blood, goat sacrifice, and no shellfish, please. Every verse. Now, if you at this moment are smiling or laughing or thinking that is crazy, what have you just said about the biblical text? Do you have a canon within a canon? Either you believe that God speaks through his entire text, or you stick with the evangelically approved texts that are tamed down enough for the local congregation. We have no desire. I love this. We have no desire to tame the text. We want to let it out of its cage, and we want to see it prowl around our lives, devouring us and spitting out the bones. We don't want to be detached, methodical scientists who stand over the subject and apply the proper rules, methods, and procedures so that we can achieve favorable results. The modern impulse is always to reduce it to simple principles and clever maxims, to continually insist that with enough work it will all make sense and line up. But life doesn't always line up. And here's what he says. We love the scriptures, and we want them to sweep us off our feet. That's what we're trying to do this semester. We're trying to look, how can Leviticus sweep us off our feet? Because here's where we start. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them. That's where we start with Leviticus. This can't be clearer. These are the Lord's words through Moses to us. So how is it a vehicle? The obstacle, it seems ridiculous. Maybe even, not, maybe even more than ridiculous, it seems dangerous. And yet God's preserved it for us. So what, are, what is he preserving for us? Well, let's get a couple of themes that we're going to hit the rest of the semester. And the way that I want to do this is just say three things. It's a vehicle to do in our lives. The first is it's a vehicle to show us something about God. Second, it's a vehicle to show us something about ourselves. And then lastly, it's a vehicle to show us something about Jesus. So first, it has something. It's a vehicle to show us something to take us somewhere important about God. And in particular about God, that holiness, that God cares about holiness because in holiness is our wholeheartedness. In holiness, in pursuing holiness, the things that God says we need to pursue, the things that God says we shouldn't pursue, is found our healing, is found our wholeheartedness. Let me, let me do it this way. If you were to ask any counselor, any good counselor, any mental health professional, the basic difference between health and unhealth, between someone who is healthy and someone who is unhealthy, here's what almost anyone would say. That healthiness, a simple definition, healthiness is a progressive ability to live as an adult in reality, is to, to, to embrace reality as it is. And unhealthiness, on the other hand, is a stubborn refusal and denial to live in that reality. It is a childish way of staying out of reality. And to understand Leviticus, you have to understand two things about what God is doing for us here. The first thing is God is assuming through the book of Genesis and Exodus that he is 
the, the definition of reality. That God is reality behind everything that we see, behind ourselves, is the reality that is God himself. He declares that from the very beginning. He's the creator. He's the author of life. Uh, there is nothing that we see that he doesn't sustain and preserve, that we have our beginnings from the beginnings of time in God. He is reality itself. He is the real. He, he is the real behind what we see, the unseen universe behind what we see. And then number two, he's always inviting his people to live, not only live in that reality, but to orient and reorient every part of our, every part of our lives around that reality. Around him, around what he says, who he is, what he does, what he's going to do. We're called as believers to orient and reorient every single part of ourselves. Not just, here's what it's saying. We We can't compartmentalize God. He will not allow it. The God of the Bible will not allow us to put him on a shelf for safekeeping. And then we want a little feel good in our life or we want a little like pick me up. We just go to that shelf and pull them off and get our little pick me up. And then we put them back in that. No, the God of the Bible will not allow that. And if you want a book to believe that. That's why we're doing Leviticus. He calls for every part of you to be oriented and reoriented around him. No one has said this better than Duke theologian Stanley Hauerwas. He's the sharpest of the sharp. Here's what he says. He says it in a really weird way, so just embrace this. He says, Christians, to be more specific, do not believe that we have the right to do whatever we want with our bodies. We do not believe that we have a right to do to our bodies because when we are baptized... We become members of one another, and then we can tell one another what it is that we should do and should not do with our bodies. And he says this. It's going to get weird, but just embrace it. I had a colleague at the University of Notre Dame who taught Judaism. He was Jewish and always said that any religion that does not tell you what to do with your genitals and pots and pans cannot be interesting. That is exactly true. In the church, we can tell you what you can and cannot do with your genitals. Just embrace that. They are not your own. They are not private. Neither are your pots and pans. Now, that's a crass way of saying every part of you belongs to God. You can't put them on a shelf. You can't compartmentalize them. And in fact, part of what he's saying is this means that human flourishing, what's best for you, what's best for me, what's best for your neighbor, is rooted in the reality of God himself. If he is who he says he is... And we can't compartmentalize him. He has to be oriented and reoriented every single part of us. And Leviticus is, a, is an invitation. That's what holiness is, by the way. Holiness, forget whatever you grew up with, the sort of list of do's and don'ts. That's, that's helpful sometimes. Sometimes it's not helpful. Holiness is orienting and reorienting every part of you, starting with your heart around the reality of God himself. So that's first. What is, Leviticus is an invitation to that. Second, though, it's an invitation for us to understand and realize something about ourselves, and this is what we're called to understand, that at the heart of ourselves, how are we going to do that? How are we going to remember and live in the reality of God? Well, we are ritualistic creatures. When you read the book of Leviticus, it's, there's ritual after ritual, sac- daily sacrifices. We're going to get into those ways that God has called his people to daily live within the camp. And part of what Leviticus shows about us is that we are ritualistic creatures, and it shows that the things that we love the most, we ritualize. Just think about for a second. Think about weddings. When's the last wedding you went to where the the bride wasn't wearing a white dress in some form? We have rituals around the things that we love. Think about football games or even just think about March Madness. We have rituals around the things that we love. Think about your parties. Think about uh, the way even you you hang out with friends. There are things we, we ritualize the things that we love and care about the most. Rituals, if you think about it, are a way of getting at the real. They're a way of trying to connect and to celebrate the things that are most important, right? 
I was thinking about this a lot because this past week, spring break, uh, for the last couple years, I've been awkwardly a part of, at my kids' school, they do this daddy-daughter dance. Which just saying daddy-daughter dance feels a million ways of awkward, but it's a really sweet thing. And so over the last five, six years, we've celebrated some, we've got some traditions now with this daddy-daughter thing. This was Sadie's first year. Jane Max, my oldest, is in middle school now, so she's not invited, sadly. Um, So now it's Eloise and Sadie, my two, my middle and my youngest. And the tradition is I dress up, I get my my tie, and I have jeans because I don't want to be too, like, too much, you know what I mean? Um, And then we, they dress up. And they love it. Mom curls the hair. They wear makeup. We go to a nice dinner. They order Shirley Temples. They, like, love this part. Like, Shirley Temples is one of the weirdest drinks in the world. But my kid, my girls, like, they can't wait. They know daddy-daughter dance means Shirley Temples. This year we went to Tombow. It was great. Um, and then we go to the dance, and they ignore me and play with their friends. And that's just part of parenthood. And then we go home. <laughs> but rituals. We dress up. We go get Shirley Temples. We go to the dance and get ignored. <laughs> but we ritual. What, but it's not for me. It's not about the dressing up. It's not about the Shirley Temples. It's it's a way of trying to say to my girls, the reality is your dad loves you, and I want you to love me. We do rituals around the things that we love the most, and the same is true with the Book of Leviticus. Good rituals are always rooted in reality. The things that are most important, most deeply important. What you have, what you have to understand is Leviticus is God's. Way of He's almost giving his people a graphic visual aid of what it means to be in relationship with him. That's the key to understanding Leviticus. He's giving them a graphic and visual aid, saying this is what it takes and this is what it means to be in relationship with me. And I want that to be not just part of your life, but your life. Your whole life is oriented around this thing. But then there's more because as we understand the book of Leviticus, we're going to understand that it's pointing to something greater and it's pointing to Jesus. And this is the last thing I want you to see is that Leviticus really is, is, a, is a, a book of shadows of greater things to come. What do I mean by that? What I mean is the rituals weren't just random, just like this book isn't random. They were foreshadowing a greater reality, a reality that was to come and be fulfilled in Jesus. And here's my bold claim. You cannot understand Jesus and what it means to love him and be loved by him if you don't understand, have a basic understanding of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is like the foundation setting up what Jesus is going to even come be about and do. Think about it like this. Just let's do a couple things. Number one, you can't understand Jesus' teaching without Leviticus. Nick Offerman had it right. He got, did you see the tension in Nick Offerman's quote? Where he said, Leviticus is the place where we find that second greatest commandment that Jesus gave us. Love your neighbor as yourself. And yet it seems so unloving in so many ways. And yet Jesus, we can't understand his teaching because Jesus goes, what are the greatest commandments? To love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And to love your neighbor as yourself. He puts us right back in the book of Leviticus. We can't understand Jesus' teaching without understanding the book of Leviticus. But then second, we can't understand what John the Baptist said about Jesus. When he said, look, here's Jesus. The Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. What in the world does that mean? The Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. Where if you were a Jew, you would know exactly what that meant. Because they were used to sacrificing lambs day and night. From the book of Leviticus as instructed by the Lord. And then we could go further and say, Jesus, when we get to the book of Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews is saying, who is Jesus? He's the high priest who can sympathize with you. He makes the sacrifice, and yet he is the sacrifice. 
He sacrificed himself, and even now, the book of Hebrews says, is pleading that sacrifice on your behalf if you belong to him, to forgive your sins, that the Father might take the justice your sin deserves against Jesus when he died on the cross for you. There are a couple of illustrations to try to get this home. You can't understand Jesus if you don't understand Leviticus. Just two illustrations, and we'll close. The first is thinking about when you're learning a language. Like, I get back, I did French in, in high school and in college. And think about when you're learning any language, French, Spanish, Italian, whatever you took, German. Where do you start? You start with the, the basics, right? You start with the hard work of conjugation and basic words and basic sentences, and you're learning to put them together so that if you really want to take it far in your international business major, you can be fluent in a language. And part of me has just said that's what Leviticus is like. It's we're learning the language of Jesus, and you'll never be fluent in the language of the love of Jesus unless you're fluent and understand the book of Leviticus. And then second and lastly, the other way to say it is the way one guy said it. Without Leviticus, the New Testament would be a house without a foundation. Leviticus is laying the foundation that Jesus is going to build upon. I'll close with this. When we were in Statesboro, Georgia, doing RUF at Georgia Southern, we built this house, or we bought this house that was being built. And uh, we noticed pretty early on that the house seemed like it was a really dry season when they built it, and they laid a concrete slab. And we noticed pretty early on this slight crack in the foundation that we quickly didn't want to deal with, or we asked the builder to deal with it. He didn't want to deal with it. So instead what we did was the natural thing of we got we planted ivy around our foundation, and ivy beautifully grew up the side of our house. And we lived in that house for five years, and then we get the call to come to South Carolina, and we are moving our stuff. We're trying to get our house ready. We've, we've, we're, we're taking the job in Columbia. We're, it's the summer before we're moving. We get this, these uh, teenage kids to come do our yard, and without asking this sweet teenage kid from our church, not only mows our yard, but decides he's going to take out all that ugly ivy, which was heartbreaking. I'm not a plant person, but I mean, this ivy was really it was beautiful. It was like right covering up the side of the house. And uh, so he rips it all out. And what do we see? This mass, I mean, like a thing that was hairline thin when we moved in to something that was massive, this massive crack in our foundation. And part of what I want to do, part of what we're doing in Leviticus, is where are the cracks in your foundation? And I think as we look at the book of Leviticus, I hope as you come back, where you're going to see there are some cracks in your understanding of the love of God, what it means to know and be in relationship with him. But I hope you come back and take a look at what God has to say as he lays that foundation about what it means to love and be loved by Jesus through the book of Leviticus. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you love us so much that you gave yourself for us. You gave yourself um, to the guilt that we deserve uh, for the guilt that we earned and did. You gave yourself and, and died for us because you love us. Would you uh, continue to teach us hard from uh, the hard parts of your word that we don't know what to do with, especially in 2017? Would you be our teacher? Would you be our guide? We pray these things with Christ in your name. Amen.
Steepest stone. 